Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. My name is Drew. I am one of the pastors here as well. Uh, if you're new to our church, we welcome you. And you might not have seen much of me over the last couple of weeks. I had a student graduate from high school, and one of the things that uh, they do at the school he goes to is their senior class takes a trip to Seattle every year. And so uh, I got to go on that trip with him uh, and be kind of the resident preacher and speaker. And then last week, uh, we just decided to take some time uh, as a family in, in lieu of that graduation. So we've been gone for a few weeks. I wanted to just say thank you for your patience with me and that busyness. Uh, but also, we have a great team here. Uh, God has really blessed our church with a lot of really talented people. So it's easy for me to get away. But it's, I just say that to say it's, it's good to be back uh, with you this morning. Uh, and so welcome. Today, we are celebrating Pentecost Sunday. Historically, the church has set one Sunday aside every year to talk about the Spirit because we don't want to forget the Spirit. It, in fact, it actually was last Sunday, but the way our schedule lined up, we just punted to today. So we want to talk about uh, and remember the reality that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection means that the Spirit has come. Uh, Fifty days after the resurrection in our scriptures, the day of Pentecost. Uh, but to talk about the Spirit, I chose this text from Galatians chapter 5 and then in, in chapter 6 because we just finished reading it together in our community Bible reading plan, so it was on my mind. And because I think it's just a crucial passage if you're going to understand what it means to live a life of the Spirit. And so if you have, if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, we're going to be in Galatians 5, talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, if you don't, don't worry. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you're at home, we welcome you as well, and it should be on your screen too. Uh, otherwise, it's printed for you in your worship folder as we read together uh, from Galatians chapter 5, Paul's letter to these Galatian Christians beginning in verse 16. So if you would read along with me. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And then from Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as we consider this text, the question my grandparents' generation asked of Christianity was, is it true? My parents' generation asked, is it real? But I think we need to be wise to know that what the question that's being asked of Christianity today by my generation and, and the generations underneath mine is this, is it, is it, is it uh, excuse me, not is it real, not is it true, but does it work? Because in many ways, we've quit the search for truth. We don't even believe such thing exists anymore. And so when all truth claims are equal as they are in our culture, then what matters is which one works. And so the spiritual search for most people today is not for enlightenment, but for power. But for personal spiritual power. 
And the good news of Christianity is that it does work. It works. And it, is, it isn't true because it works. It works because it's true. And you can have your sins forgiven and live with the promise of eternal life. And you can experience spiritual power for change, both personally for your personal growth and development, but also for cultural and social change. This is our gospel. Because the Spirit who was moving over the waters in creation in Genesis chapter 1 is now, according to our Bible, moving to recreate the whole world, beginning with you and me and all who believe. That's, that's what we believe. And so if you're not a Christian... I have a question for you. I'm so glad you're here this morning, but let me just ask, is your life working? I mean, do you have the courage to really look yourself in the mirror and ask that question? Is your life working? And if the answer is no, then I'm praying that you'll give me a hearing today and consider, consider Christianity. But if you're here and you're a Christian, I have a question for you too. You're not off the hook. You need to ask this. Is your Christianity working? Is it changing you? Is it making... A difference in your life? Do you find that you're living with more joy and peace and patience with other people and so forth with each passing year? Does your life, as you live it, make other people look and say, you know, that works. I need to, I need to check that out. If not, it's possible that you believe, but for one reason or another, you might believe, but you're not living a spirit-filled life. And that is the theme of this text in Galatians 5, and it's the, it's the title of the sermon as well, as you see there probably printed for you, How to Live a Spirit-Filled Life. And there's a lot in this text. It really was probably foolish to try to do all of this in one week, but nevertheless, you're going to see that I have five things. It took two pages to get the outline on here today, so buckle up. No, in all seriousness, we won't be here any longer. We'll just have to go a little bit faster through these points. But if you're going to live a spirit-filled life, then you need to see both all of these things, the truth and the fight and the fruit and the power and the practice. Because all of those are key components, and they're all here in Galatians 5 and 6 to lead us towards a spirit-filled life. The truth and the fight and the fruit and the power and the practice. So let's don't dally. Let's get right into it. Let's talk about the truth first. And here's the truth. The spirit has come. Jesus Christ went up into heaven at the end of his earthly life, and he went up into heaven, which is what Jonathan talked about last week. He went up into heaven so that the Spirit could come down. He said to his disciples, it's better for you that I go away, because then, he said, I would send the helper. The helper would come. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Isn't that great news? It's equally great news that he is also in that same passage in John chapter 1 called the one who baptizes in Holy Spirit and fire. So all those whose sins he's taken away, he also has come to baptize with Holy Spirit and fire. And so Christianity is the good news that in Jesus your sins can be forgiven and you can be accepted and become part of God's family. But also it is the good news that if you believe, you can live with spiritual power. Romans 8 for example, is very clear. If you've believed in Jesus, it says there, then the Spirit dwells in you. Think about that word, dwells. The Spirit has made a home in you. And so the line in the hymn that we sing, think what Spirit dwells within you. And yet in Ephesians 5, for example, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Right? That's the famous verse, be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5, 18. But the verb there is in the present tense, 
And it describes then an ongoing reality. So something that should be happening over and over and over again, day after day in your life. It really, you should translate it, be being filled with the Spirit. That would be the best way to translate that verse. And so the truth is, if you put those two things together, if you believe in Jesus, then he has given you the Spirit. And he makes it possible for you to live a Spirit-filled life. But it's not automatic. It doesn't just happen automatically. Look at the way... It's put here. Look at the language in this passage, verse 16. We have to walk by the Spirit. Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So what Paul, the way I would put it to you is you try to make sense of all that language. Paul's saying you've got to have a relationship with the Spirit. You have to walk with him the way you would with a friend. You have, to, you have to have a relationship with him the way you would any other person because he's a person. And so you walk with him as you would a friend and you follow him and you talk with him and you hear him talking to you, hopefully not in an audible voice, but nevertheless, right? And you follow and act on his promptings because you have an active daily relationship with the person of the spirit. Now on the opposite side, Bible says you can grieve the spirit. That's Ephesians 4.30. That you can quench the spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19. And both of those verbs are also present tense. And so we learn here you can be habitually damaging the relationship with the spirit. You can be cutting yourself off from the spirit's power. Now exactly how is a whole other sermon, okay? We're going to try to stay to this text. But let me just say this and just nerd alert before I even say this, Okay. So nerd alert, I'm going to tell myself here, but be filled in Ephesians is a present passive verb. Grieve the spirit, quench the spirit, and those two references are present active verbs. And I think there's a spiritual lesson there. And I think it's this, that it's when you're focused and relying on your own doing, when you've got it all figured out, when you feel strong and not weak, and there's lots of will at work in your life. It's when you're achieving and not receiving that you're most in danger of quenching the spirit. A spirit-filled life is just that. It's a life that is full of the spirit. Do you know what I mean by that? A life that is full of the spirit. It's, a, it's an imperfect analogy, but um, something like this. Ashley and I, I know this might make us weird. My wife and I, we love uh, summer because especially now that our kids are in school, uh, because it's in those summer days that the house is so full of our kids. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, they're there all the time. They don't go away to school for hours every day. So it's just full of their presence, their voices, their music coming from their rooms, the fights they have with one another, the, the squealing and the yelling and so forth, and we just love it. And that's what I mean. When they're at school, our relationship's still the same, but when they're home for all those days during the summer, the house is just full of them. And a spirit-filled life is a life that is full of the spirit. Your days are full of the spirit's presence. It's full of the spirit's voice. And so that's the truth. Jesus went up into heaven so the spirit could come down, but it's not automatic. You have to, you have, to have a relationship with him. But secondly, I want you to see, not only do you have to understand the truth, but also the fight. Because Paul here describes two competing spiritual powers, in fact, that teach, that are inside of each of us, that are in conflict with one another. He calls them the flesh and the spirit. So here's verse 17. 
He says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And from there, he goes on to describe the works of the flesh, verse 19 and following, and then the fruit of the spirit, beginning in verse 22, as two contrasting lists of potential attitudes and outcomes in your life. And so the spirit here is spiritual power in you, animating you from the inside out towards obedience. Jesus in you making you more like him, powerfully transforming you into the same kind of person that he was, and then living his life through you. Because the Spirit desires to glorify Jesus in you. The flesh, the flesh is the opposite. It is the fallen nature in each of us that we inherited from the first man and the first woman that is opposed to God. The flesh, as it's described here by Paul, is an anti-God way of life. It's a life of serving yourself. And these two are doing this all the time. They're at war. They're bumping up against one another. They're in conflict against each other to see who will win. And the result is that we don't do the things we want. Too often. We don't do the things we want. But here's the thing that we learn here. That reality of experiencing this frustration of not being able to pull off the things that we want to do is actually the indication of the Spirit's presence and influence. See, we have to banish this notion that the Spirit-filled life is victory all the time. It's not. Actually, the truest test of whether you're living by the Spirit, the truest test of whether you're keeping in step with the Spirit is how acutely you feel the struggle that exists between the flesh and the Spirit. So the person who's not a Christian doesn't feel any internal conflict. They don't want to obey God, and the flesh is there consistently giving them what they want. But when you become a Christian, what we learn here is, when you become a Christian, the Spirit comes into your life and creates new desires. You actually begin to want to obey God. That's that Ezekiel 36 passage. The problem is, is the flesh is still there, and it keeps you from doing what you want. As Jesus said about his disciples on his... Last night on earth, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And if that's true, then the most genuine spiritual experience is wanting to obey God, but not always being able to. Wanting to obey him, but not ever being able to really pull it off. In fact, the more the spirit is winning in your life, the more you will feel your failure, not less. I mean, the better you become, the worse you feel, right? We've said that over and over again. The better you're becoming, the worse you're feeling. And so one of the reasons that I am a Christian is because of how realistic Christianity is. It just matches with my experience. And here we learn it's honest about the struggle. It doesn't shy away from reality. It says life is full of failure. And becoming a Christian doesn't change that. If anything, it intensifies your experience of it. You become aware more and more of your sin. But in the middle of all of that, there's hope. Because there's spiritual power that can come into your life and begin to change you. But what I want you to see is that the evidence of the Spirit's presence and power in your life is the fight, not necessarily the victory. Not yet. And so you see the truth in the fight. Thirdly, the fruit. What Paul goes on to do from here is to compile two lists of characteristics. And one describes the person who's being shaped more profoundly by the flesh. The flesh is winning. In this fight, the flesh is 
pulled ahead, you know, like on the Jumbotron at the, at the game, do you know like at the game where you go and the, the little race cars are on the screen and it's like, and they go back and forth and somebody, right? The flesh is pulled ahead. He says, and when the flesh pulls ahead, here's how you know. The works of the flesh are this, they're evident. Sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality and idolatry, and he goes on, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and so forth. The other, beginning in verse 23, describes the person who the spirit has pulled ahead. The spirit is being, he's being, this person is being shaped more profoundly by the spirit. And they're a person who exhibits love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Now, you look at those two lists and you realize they're obviously opposites. I mean, just think, jealousy and envy and love are opposites. Jealousy and envy are hating the happiness of others, being grieved by someone else's happiness. Love is putting your happiness in the happiness of another person. So they're opposites. So our enmity and strife and taking sides and peace, right? Those are opposites. I mean, enmity and strife take the whole and divide it up and turn it into parts. Peace, they create dissensions and divisions. Peace means taking the parts and making them a whole. So they're opposites. So are fits of anger and patience and gentleness. Those are opposites. Sensuality and drunkenness and orgies and then self-control. Those are opposites. And again, the point here is that a Christian should be characterized by love and joy and peace and so forth and not sexual immorality and idolatry and enmity and jealousy. And if you're a Christian and you have the Spirit and are walking with Him, then your life should be full of the, of the stuff in that second list and not the first. But in truth, because of the fight that we just described, every single one of us in this room, if you have the Spirit of God, then you will be, to one degree or another, always characterized by both. Sometimes you'll be full of kindness and gentleness and self-control, and then at other times, the flesh will get the best of you. And you'll find yourself exhibiting to your horror things in that first list. But the list is there to help you identify the flesh so that you can root it out by digging down into your life and figuring out where and why it's still winning. So there's the fruit, and then there's the root. And Paul is describing the fruits to help you dig down into the roots. Now the fruit of the Spirit are a better indication of a spirit-filled life than the gifts of the spirit. I want to say that also because the gifts, and this was just Jonathan Edwards, he said the gifts, the charismata, are adornments. They're external. He said, you know, if somebody can exhibit gifts without having any of the fruits of the spirit, they can have the gifts of the spirit but no fruits of the spirit. And it's like putting an earring in the nose of a pig is what he said, you know. I mean, you can have those things without being personally changed in the least bit. Because they're external, but the fruit of the Spirit is, is the actual beautification of the soul. Because in the fruits of the Spirit, you're being inwardly transformed. The gifts are like accessories, but the fruit is true beauty. And so we need to stop being so impressed with gifts. You with me? We need to stop being so impressed with hype. Character is what really matters. Character is what really matters. But let me also say, one more thing before we move on, that there's a warning here in, the, in these lists of fruit. After describing the works of the flesh, Paul writes this in verse 21. He says, I warn you that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so these are two lists to help you 
evaluate which is most characteristic of you. So you're supposed to ask questions of yourself as you look at this. Are you generally a kind and loving person who still struggles with jealousy and envy from time to time? Are you a peacemaker who maybe gets caught up in conflict and controversy? Or are you just a troublemaker? (laughs) I mean, do you just relish the controversy? Are your appetites just completely out of control? Because if your life is dominated by the first list and not the second, then what Paul is saying is, is you need to stop and ask whether you're really a Christian. Jesus said this, he said, you will recognize them by their fruits. A healthy tree bears good fruit, a diseased tree bears bad fruit. He goes on to say the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. So you take the fruit and you go down into the root. But a Christian, on the other hand, is a person who's been given a whole new nature and therefore they are more and more, not, not, not perfectly, but more and more characterized by love and joy and peace and all of these things. Not all the time, not without failure, but more and more as time goes by. Because Paul says, those who belong to Christ Jesus, verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now the verb tense there refers to a decisive event in the past that continues to have impact in the present. And so the Spirit's coming into your life breaks the power of the flesh so that you're never the same. That's the teaching there in that verse. Now, again, we could say so much more, but that will have to suffice for today. My gym, uh, they run these, these fitness challenges from time to time, and they're always a part of the challenge. You get points for different things, but part of it is you have to take a before and an after pick. Right? So you go at the beginning of the eight weeks, you take the before pick, you do the eight weeks, and then you take the after pick, and you're supposed to be able to look at the two things. Now, it's never worked this way for me personally, but you're supposed to, like, look at it and say, oh, wow, look at the change that happened. I was this, and now I'm this. And the verse 24 here means that there is the before, and then there's the after of the Spirit coming into your life. The fruit. But fourthly, for that to be the case, you've got to understand the power as well. You have to be living from the right power source. And Paul makes two statements here in verse 18 and verse 23 that are parallel. He says in verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So the Spirit and the flesh are contrasted here, are contrasted, but also here the Spirit and the law are being contrasted, which means that there's a connection between the law and the flesh. It means the law can't help you overcome the flesh. The law actually makes the flesh worse. And it's confirmed in verse 23 where after listening to the fruit of the Spirit, he says, against such thing there is no law. Now commentators are puzzled by that last line. It's uncertain exactly what Paul means. But I think it's something like this, if I could put it to you this way. Can you imagine, try to imagine a Congress passing a law that... that that outlawed joylessness. If you're joyless, you're going to go to jail. Well, every one of us would serve time, wouldn't we? Can you imagine a law forbidding anxiety? I would have a life sentence. See, law is a form of external moral constraint. It can work on you from the outside, but it can't change you internally. The law can stop murder for the most part, but it can't get into the anger which is the root of murder. 
That's what Paul's saying there. But the Spirit, the Spirit is power that comes inside. It's power on the inside. So in the Spirit-filled life, you're motivated differently. You're motivated internally. You're being compelled. Here's the difference. Listen to this. You're, you're now a person who's being compelled from the inside, not constrained from the outside. And there's a difference. And I, I'm so keen on that right now because I'm sending a, a kid away from college. And it's the scary thing for parents when they send kids away to college because, uh, you know, it, you realize that a change has got to take place in them. And so high school seniors, I just want to say to you, because I wasn't here last week to be able to say this to you, but here's the hard thing about what's next in your life is from now on, it's got to come from you. When you're living with your parents... You can get away with being lazy and not being internally motivated because they're there to make sure you're where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be, and that you're doing all the things that you're supposed to do. But then you, you get out there and you're on your own, and all of a sudden, it's got to come from you. So will you still do it? When, when all of that external pressure is removed from your life, will you do it because you're internally, properly internally motivated? And that's what Paul's saying here. But the other thing I want to say here is that if you, if you try to use the law, uh, if you're using the law to try to make a person moral, what, what we're being taught here is that you're doing it at the expense of the fruit of the Spirit. And see, this is the problem with most of our moral instruction. It nurtures joylessness and anxiety and selfishness as we do it. And so in doing so, you're actually feeding the sinful roots and making them stronger. It might look like it's working externally, but internally... You know, the people you're working with, they're becoming more selfish and more anxious because what we're told is that the law actually strengthens the flesh. And the flesh is the part of you that makes you sin. And what we learn about it here is that it's the part of you that wants to go back under the law. It's the motivational system that constantly is trying to move you back into moral performance as a way of approaching God and as a way of building an identity for yourself. And it takes all the different parts of our lives, your career and your family and your relationships and your, your marriage and so forth, and it pulls all of those things into a system of moral performance as the basis for identity and salvation. And it creates in the process what Paul refers to here as desires. It's this Greek word epithumia. We talk about it all the time. These over-desires where good things become God things, where good things become ultimate things, and you feel all of this not just anxiety, but epi-anxiety, and not just fear, but epi-fear, because something that shouldn't be as important to you as it is has become too important. And this experience that I'm describing is what it means to be under the law, to be trapped in this workspace system where everything, good or bad, becomes a verdict, and you feel everything has an epi attached to it. Uh, it's, it's exactly the picture in Max Lucado's book about the Wemmicks, who they're these little wooden people who go around all day long. All they do, the only activity they're engaged in, they go everywhere they go, they go around sticking stars and dots on one another. And you do something good, you get a star. And you do something bad, and you get a dot. And life becomes just the accumulation of stars and dots from one another. But for there to be any real spiritual progress, that whole system has to be, dis oh, excuse me, has to be dismantled. And the epithemia have to be, has to be killed off. And there are, there are two steps to doing this. And this is kind of the end of what I have to say this morning. And this is what the Spirit makes possible. First, you have to find the epithemia. 
You have to find the places in your life where it's obvious that something that's a good thing, an important thing, but it's become too important. It's a good thing that's become an ultimate thing, and it's become too important to you, and you, you have all of this epi emotion surrounding it. You gotta find that epithemia, and you gotta dig down into it, and you gotta ask, okay, what's going on here? Okay, why, do I, why am I feeling all the things that I'm feeling here? So when you feel this out-of-control desire and, and the emotions that accompany it, you stop and you say, okay, something's not right here. Why am I acting this way? And what you do is you begin to ask questions. You begin to dig and do some, some searching of your own heart. You'll realize that somewhere along the way, what's happened is, is you've slipped back under the law. You've fallen back into a works-based mentality. And you got to figure out where that is. You got to you got to really kind of dig into your life and figure out where am I not where am I not trusting in what Christ has done for me? Where am I not resting in his grace? And as you begin to uncover these things, the second thing you do is then you have to recalibrate yourself back towards grace. You have to remind yourself of grace. Because it says in verse 24 that those who belong to Christ Jesus are those who have crucified the flesh with its epithemia. Do you see that verse? Those who belong to Christ Jesus are those who have the power to crucify the flesh with its epithemia. And so the power for change, according to that verse, comes from knowing that you already belong. Steve Brown, who taught me in seminary, he used to say it this way, that the only people who get better are those who know that if they never get better, God will love them anyway. I thought that would get some mm, profound, like, mm, because to me that's life-giving. Is to you? Can't you just relax into that? Doesn't that feel like, okay, I can take a breath? You see, in every other religion, it would be something like this. If you crucify the flesh with its epithemia, then you can belong. But in Christianity, it's the other way around because Christianity is grace, not law. And here's the thing. You can wound the flesh with fear. You can keep it in line to a certain degree with fear, but the mortal wound comes from the joy of knowing that you belong no matter what. And that's because in the chapter before this, in chapter 4, it says that Jesus Christ... God himself was born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that they might belong to God's family by grace. That's verses 4 through 6. He was truly human, like you and me, and he was born under the obligation of the law, just like you and I. But in his life of perfect obedience and in his death as a sacrifice for sins, because he has been victorious in all of that, because he has completed that great work that he came to do, you and I, we're no no longer under the law when we believe in him. We are under grace. And the way of the Spirit is grace. The Spirit, we're told, is constantly bearing witness to our hearts that we, in fact, do belong to God, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And so to walk in the reality of your belovedness is what it means to walk in the Spirit. But there's a practice, and that's the last thing. There's a practice that you, have to, that you have to make a part of your life if you're going to really live in the power of the Spirit and walk in your belovedness. And it's, and it's the part in Galatians 6 that we picked up where it says, whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so if you're going to live a Spirit-filled life, you have to be sowing to the Spirit and not to the flesh. Now, I have good news and I have bad news. The bad news is, is that I'm out of time. The good news, 
The good news is, is that we're going to spend the rest of the summer talking about how you sow to the Spirit, not to the flesh. And so come back next week and the week after, or tune in. But for now, let me just say this. We normally, the way we normally go about trying to change is just to set our will to the problem, right? This is, this is uh, New Year's resolutions. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna will ourselves to becoming the better person that we want to be. But I just want to say to you, that is sowing to the flesh. And it might stop the effects of, or the results of the messed up heart, but it can't change the messed up heart. The key, rather, is gospel remembrance. Sowing to the Spirit is to be constantly reminding yourself of your need and God's grace in Jesus, of your insufficiency and his sufficiency, of your sin and his salvation, to be constantly rehearsing those truths over and over again to your own heart. And that's the practice. Come back. We're going to talk about it in the weeks to come. I am, uh, just let me finish with this. I'm, I'm reading a biography of Jack Miller. Some of you are familiar with Paul Miller. This is Paul's dad. Uh, Jack was really the, fa- the, the, the father of the modern gospel resurgence uh, that you see. Who He was at the center of a small revival in the 70s and 80s that resulted in uh, Redeemer New York City with Tim Keller being planted and CCEF in Philly, which some of you are familiar with, and really the founding of our denomination uh, in truth. Uh, and he, I'm, I'm at the part of the book where he's describing the spiritual breakthrough that took place in his life around 1970 to 72. <laughs> and he put it like this. I just found it so, uh, I chuckled on the beach this past week because I was thinking about this sermon. But he said, he said, he summed it up. He said this, I decided to become a Trinitarian. In other words, he said, he said, I realized something was missing. I had Trinitarian theology. Christians believe in the Trinity. God the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. And he said, I realized that I was functionally not Trinitarian. He said, I I decided to become a Trinitarian. He realized that his theology, which is our theology, had marginalized the Holy Spirit's role in his life. And he started asking God for the Holy Spirit. And the power came. And so I would leave you with Luke 11, which just says this, ask, seek, knock. Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, ask, seek, knock. For if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so Isaac Watts says this in an old hymn, Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening powers, kindle a flame of sacred love in these cold hearts of ours. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with thy all-quickening powers, come shed abroad the Savior's love, and that shall kindle ours. Uh, Pray with me, if you would. So, Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us this morning, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would indeed come. I, I am just so mindful of the vision of Ezekiel in chapter 47 of his prophecy, where he looked out and saw the valley of dry bones, And I feel that way so often myself. I can feel like I'm just a a dried up, um, not even a shell of the person that I want to be. So hard-hearted and cold on the inside. But then as Ezekiel stood there, he heard the rustling of a wind. And a wind began to blow over the valley and the dry bones lived. Because the Spirit came. And so, Father, as this word has been preached this morning to the dry bones, we call for the wind. Holy Spirit, would you come? 
come upon us now. We thank you for the promise where it says that if we ask, the Father delights to give us the Spirit. And so we need the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come with your power. Holy Spirit, come with your wisdom. Holy Spirit, come with your convicting presence and lead us to repentance and faith. Come with your reminding grace and drive home to our hearts yet again the promise of the gospel that is ours in Jesus Christ. And may the result be that we become people full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. May may you begin the work you want to do in the world with us. And then may you use us, may you work through us to bring about your purposes. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so if you'd stand with me now. Not just, Brandon is not only the one being sent. We all are being sent. And this benediction is the promise that as God sends you, uh, Jesus said, go into all the world uh, and know that I will go with you. And that's what these words mean. And so this is the promise of the Spirit, even. Uh, who has come into the world to be with you as you go in obedience to him. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace. Make sure you get to see Brandon before you leave.